In the mountains of rural China, in a village with only one paved road, a farmer raises free-range vegetarian chickens. On factory farms, chickens are bred, caged and fed so that they're ready to slaughter in less than a month. But these free-range mountain chickens eat corn grown locally. And they spend at least three months stretching their legs. And for that kind of upbringing, customers will pay a premium. But there was a problem. The farmer had a hard time convincing potential buyers that his free-range chickens were actually free-range. There is a very low level of food trust and safety in China because, one, a lack of regulations previously. You can compare it to like other countries historically, like the U.S. in the 1920s, for example. But also just the nature of this push for scale and demand in China creates a low level of food safety. That's Xiaowei Wang, who wrote about this farmer and his chickens in their recent book. When Xiaowei was visiting, the farmer was trying something new. With help from his local government, he started using a technology that would prove that his chickens were actually free range and worth the higher price point. He connected his chickens to blockchain. So it's like a little chicken Fitbit that's attached to the chicken and it counts the number of steps, it counts its, it like tracks its GPS location so you can know like it came from this village and went to the slaughterhouse and no one adulterated it at all. During the first phase of the project, the farmer sold 6,000 blockchain verified chickens, a huge success. And that success benefited several other families working on the project and 300 other households as part of the government's poverty alleviation effort. The surprising part was when I started asking the county official who was kind of in charge of the project, as well as the farmer, like, whoa, so what do you think of blockchain? They were like, what is blockchain? I'm Damian Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about, well, influence. Who has it, who wants it, and how to use it for good. Xiaowei Wang is an artist, writer, and coder based in the Bay Area. They are also author of the book with a truly amazing title, Blockchain Chicken Farm. In the book, Xiaowei travels through China, challenging expectations about rural versus urban advancement, how innovation travels globally, and how true change won't come from a technology, but instead in a transformation of compassion, imagination, and society. Xiaowei, thanks for being here. Thank you. I obviously loved your book. I don't know anybody that would pick up a book entitled Blockchain Chicken Farm and not be at least intrigued as to what on earth it's all about. I'd love to get into the book, but there's a lot of news regulation happening at the moment, and in particular with two teenage kids. I was fascinated at the recent regulation or attempts at regulation from China to put a limit on gaming. I was just intrigued as to what your perspective around this was, because it's pretty draconian. Right. So the new regulations on gaming are situated in the broader context of a lot of new tech regulations across China more broadly. So not just gaming, but also mobile payment, um, issues surrounding tech IPOs, data security, algorithms. And the reasons for doing this are 
you know, there's multiple, <laughs> multiple reasons depending on who you talk to. There certainly is a broader public support in China for thinking about the role of tech in people's lives and how much power tech has. You know, as an example, Alipay, which is this mobile payment system, they were automatically enrolling users into their mobile payment app and all these credit scores. And the general public consumers were not happy about this. So there is one sense of consumer protection. The other end of this is you know, the Chinese government is very patriarchal and sees a need to patrol the morals of what its citizens are doing, right? And a lot of young Chinese folks, they are gaming because similar to where I am in the Bay, you have millennials and Gen Z kind of cash strapped, not really able to like buy a house, enjoy all the things the previous generation did. And so people turn to online gaming, you know, social media, things like that for entertainment. And the government thinks this is a kind of addiction and making people unproductive. And these young folks should be going out and working and hustling instead and contributing positively to society, not just giving up and playing World of Warcraft all day. To that end, I think it's actually really fascinating all the things it brings up, not just in China, but in the US when we think about like, well, what are people of my generation doing, right? We're on Instagram a lot. Oh, that's right. I mean, I'm a little bit older than you. And I can vividly remember when we were kids, you know, we had four TV channels. In America, you had probably 400 the statistics that were sort of bantered around at that point, the average American was spending about seven hours in front of a television. Now, that wasn't glued to the television. It just was on in the background constantly, like we had you know, the radio on. You know, my parents were appalled at the idea that Americans were just going to consume so much TV. Fast forward to my kids today, seven hours of screen time, it's a joke. I mean, we'd be happy with seven hours of screen time. And we were looking at not just television, but TikTok, YouTube, Spotify, it is fascinating what China is, is doing, and it, the switch suddenly seems to have flipped, that um, we seem to be seeing an awful lot of regulation or conversation around regulation coming in really over the course of the last 12, 18 months, in my opinion. Do you feel the same? Absolutely. And I do think some of it is because the way that tech economic development happened was that there wasn't a lot of regulation to begin with. And so some of the regulation is like, you know, filling in the stuff that they were missing before um, that was just egregiously missing. But in light of COVID, in light of economic growth and thinking through what this next generation is doing and how they're spending their time and also like national interests, this tech regulation is also coming about because of that. So let's move on to your book. Perhaps you could give us some context around why you felt you needed to do it. Yeah, so I started researching vinegars about four years ago. Right. And in China, there's all these different regional vinegars. And at the time, I thought I was, you know, really going to just do like a simple recipe zine about these vinegars and thinking through food. And I was also previously working in tech as a software engineer. And in tech, like on the ground, seeing a lot of these narratives, especially with the rise of Trump around like anti-China stuff, ideas of economic competition, 
So somehow my brain did the thing where I put together two seemingly unrelated topics, but actually noticed that there was an an enormous amount of connection between them, particularly around anti-China, not only narratives, but also regulation in the U.S., and then seeing how interconnected the U.S. and China really was um, when I was in China, both in terms of computers, hardware, but also even just like global agriculture and the way that the global agricultural market was being shaped. I loved how when I started gathering these stories of food, they were all heavily being changed and shifted through new technologies, but also even just historically, like the story of food, something like vinegar, it was really a story of technology as well, like just all the different advances um, through the production process, through distribution. And it just really made sense to me, at least, to uh, gather this into a story about food the countryside and technology. It is a fascinating book. And I do I do love the fact that it's interspersed with recipes. But I couldn't work out whether you're a sort of technologist or a foodie, which came first. So it's technology first, but food is your interest? Yes. I also think that being part of the Chinese diaspora, food is like the medium for conveying many things. Yeah. Uh, you know, just in terms of like Chinese culture, food is just, you know, that's how you interact with family, with friends. The way that you eat is a reflection of like how far your family has advanced in society. Because historically, there were times of great famine in China. So being able to talk about contemporary China now has to talk about food in some way. So you started this four years ago. And prior to this journey, when was the last time you were in China? Um, I go back fairly often. Okay. So seeing seeing family at least once a year for an extended period of time. Because of COVID, I've been unfortunately not able to go back recently. So that's that's been a sad thing. I mean, going back frequently, I guess it wasn't a shock to you in, uh, in the differences in, in sort of food culture. But was it a shock for you to go back and to really get into rural China and to, to experience food on all different levels? Yeah, there were so many interesting connections just thinking about the context of these villages more broadly. You know, there were times where you would get a bowl of rice and it would just be this very sacred thing. And people would talk about like how this wasn't always guaranteed. You would get like a bowl of rice and like some cabbage. And that's, you know, a reminder that in the cities you can eat everything. We throw away a lot of things. And it's really plentiful. But in the countryside, you're really like connected to your food in this very strong way. And so much survival just hinges on the season, the land, all these things. I read it as an adventure. So I don't know if that's how it really was, but it came across as an adventure. It was definitely an adventure. There were many uh, wrong turns, missed buses, being stuck in certain places. I really loved it. There were some villages where I went back multiple times. So it almost feels like I have this second home in this one village, Shandi Ping, where, you know, I would go twice a year and they would just say like, oh, see you in the fall for the fish harvest or see you for like the rice harvest. And just feeling really touched that these families have integrated me in some sense into their lives. So, yeah, I felt really honored by that. 
So when you're setting up the conversations and you're invited into somebody's house, are you invited in under the premise that you're going to talk about technology or are you there to talk about food and life and technology is just something that comes out of it as you experience how they're living? What was the order? Um, it was definitely first through food because when you get to a village, actually the first thing anyone asks you is, have you eaten yet? Which is, I think, That's a nice. hallmark. <laughs> yes, it's a hallmark of Chinese culture, really, um, across all different groups. And so it kind of unfolds with this meal. And I think eating and talking about the food is this really wonderful way to like enter into people's lives and try to understand where they're coming from. Trying to talk about tech in the countryside is really interesting because, you know, that term tech or kuji in Chinese, it's like so broad. And throughout the course of the meal, it's like trying to unpack what that means. Because for them, there's certain kinds of tech that we don't even think of. For example, this one village, the way that they're saving their special rice breed from one season to the next. If you think about it in like modern, quote unquote, scientific terms, you're preserving the genetic purity of this like one rice seed. But to them, they've been practicing this forever. And it is a kind of tech. Um, it's just not the way that we're thinking of it as tech, like with microscopes and like DNA samples. And it's cool to just have these conversations with people. When you talk about technology, the spectrum that I see in the conversations is huge. The technology is in using mussels to farm pearls or using blockchain to farm chickens. Can you talk about those innovations and what surprised you most when you learned about them? That's hard to say. I think so much of it was surprising. Like the mussel farming was this surreal situation where they were telling me about the different types of experimentation that they were doing with like implanting the muscles um, in order to grow these pearls and how they've really, you know, come a long way, quote unquote, since the 80s. And the reason why, you know, all of these moments are surprising is because, for example, in the case of the muscle farming, it's three young folks in their 30s. One of them studied maybe economics and the other two uh, just grew up around pearl farming. But it's this very like scrappy sort of, you know, they're feeding the ponds uh, pig and chicken feces. There's like Sprite bottles that are repurposed for the ponds. And so it's just really fascinating to see the level of precision they're carrying out experiments like that with, with this literally muddy context. Other moments maybe were the reverse the blockchain chicken, where I went to the farm. And, you know, the surprising part wasn't that they were using blockchain to farm chickens, actually, because that was a very top-down project. The surprising part was when I started asking the county official who was kind of in charge of the project, as well as the farmer, like, oh, so what do you think of blockchain? None of them, they were like, what is blockchain? And that was the shocking part where it was like, oh, this technology, you like don't even know what it is, but you're using it and like putting your entire livelihood on it, really, right? Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> there are posters all over town of, you know, crypto.com and, you know, they're the sponsors of the F1 and Premier League football. I'm sure an awful lot of people are in a similar boat. But so maybe you could explain, you know, what is the point of them using blockchain to farm chickens? 
So the farmer that I talked to was actually raising free range chickens for a super long time. And there is a very low level of food trust and safety in China because one, a lack of regulations previously, you can compare it to like other countries historically, like the US in the 1920s, for example, but also just the nature of this push for scale and demand in China creates a low level of food safety. So the farmer wasn't having any luck convincing people that these chickens were free range. But then a county official was like, oh, I have a brilliant idea. We'll use blockchain to track and surveil these chickens, basically. So it's like a little chicken Fitbit that's attached to the chicken and it counts the number of steps. It tracks its GPS location so you can know like it came from this village and went to the slaughterhouse and no one adulterated it at all. And it actually uh, gets sold online. So you just get this chicken at your doorstep (laughs) when you order it. And, you know, it, it was very well received, especially by people in cities who could afford to pay this kind of price for fancy blockchain chicken. But you also described the fact that most people won't actually go through the process of checking whether or not there's authenticity in this blockchain chicken. For most people, it's just a sticker, as in an organic sticker that you might get on a piece of organic chicken from the supermarket already. Huge expense, (laughs) an unbelievable process, which nobody's really checking up on. Absolutely. But I mean, this scarier thing was, you know, there was a bunch of research related to provenance, so supply chain tracking using blockchain and supply chain stuff that I had looked into that didn't make it into the book and starting to like interview people and just realizing like, oh, there's not very good supply chain transparency just broadly. (laughs) And a lot of what we accept as like organic or things like that, there may be checking like 1%, or at least in the US. I don't know about Europe. There might be more stringent regulations, but in the US, it's just kind of scary. Or like, even when they inspect the cargo ships, the containers for things and verifying where they came from, that your mouse is really a like Logitech mouse, things like that. There's very little insight into those supply chains. Does the, um, the pain point, does it start with a lack of trust in government or is it a lack of trust in private companies? It's an interesting pattern that I think yields some bigger lessons. But the Chinese government specifically has always had like this very top down kind of messaging. And it'll give certain me- messaging that turns out to be very much false, right? It's trying to cover up something. So citizens start to have a low level of trust in the government. But then when the government is trying to regulate, like in an actual way, things like food safety, people are very skeptical of the regulations and maybe don't want to be compliant with them. I mean, as someone living in America, do you see any similarities? I mean... (laughs) I think the, Amer- the U.S. has a lot more. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot more to add in there, but definitely, definitely that. Um, yeah, I think there's also a low level of trust in private companies in China, too. But actually, what's interesting is that people have more confidence, I think, in the private companies, not just in China, but globally. You think people have more trust in private companies in China versus America? I do think so. There were a few interviews that I couldn't put in because they were very 
sensitive is the term that I'll say, but I was surprised that even people who were part of the government had more trust in private companies to do a better job at implementing regulation and compliance than the government itself. And a lot of like internal sense of bureaucracy and things like that as well. We've seen the same, right, in in Europe and in America over the last few years too, that government hasn't been up to speed. So companies have had to take the first step and government's slowly catching up. I mean, it's only now that in the US you have Tim Wu, somebody that's got a good technological background actually advising government. We get there slowly. Yeah. Um, In your book, you also talk about drone workers and it's starting off um, with so much promise. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the opportunity there. Right. So these young drone operators that I met in Guangzhou at this big conference for XAG, which is this agricultural drone company, it was really fascinating to hear this new job basically emerge out of agricultural drones. One of the operators that I talked to, Sun Wei, he basically took the drone operating course online because he was previously interested in things like model airplanes and got the certification, started flying these agricultural drones, and now has like a whole team that he works with to go around China. And what they do is use these drones to spray pesticides onto crops. As it was explained to me, because there's this constant shortage of labor in the countryside, because no one wants to farm, basically, like the younger generation is like, farming is really tough work. Why would I want to do this? They do have roving agricultural labor teams that come in and pitch in and help farmers. But this agricultural drone team was really taking it to the next level. And it felt really exciting and promising to have this new kind of vocation created. And Sun Wei, because he was interested in things like GIS, geographical information systems, this more like tech side of drone operation, like it allowed him to flex those skills alongside farming. Soon Wei was really quite a pioneer in doing something with his skill set and the means that he had, but only later to be sort of overtaken by the drone manufacturers who actually make it accessible for the farmers to cut out the middleman and operate these things themselves. A bit of a story, a tragic story of evolution and technology, in my opinion, is, is there a more humane way to advance technology without hurting those people like Sun Wei? I mean, in the case of XAG and the drones, right? Definitely certain things, they can't be forever. Talking to Sun Wei, like if that was his same job forever, he probably wouldn't feel like he was really advancing his career either. And I do think it's about what are the opportunities and ways and new skills that people like Sun Wei can learn as part of their job. Right now, you know, he's being a drone operator and he's using these advanced mapping systems. But what are other ways that he can start to shape those mapping systems? That's always a reminder to me, like it's about the skills and the ways that we see the tech creating a process or like ways of gaining skills or education and not just like as a means to an end. So apparently, you know, when I talked to XAG folks, they were trying to think about ways to push their drone operator curriculum. I haven't reconnected with them recently to see, but I feel 
slightly hopeful about that. I found it very hard to tell whether the book was actually optimistic or pessimistic. Um, at times it's, it's both, but I, I don't know if there was a deliberate intention to make it either. I think I have a tendency towards pessimism, but then am reminded as someone who is now an educator that I need to be optimistic. And when I do see the next generation, I, I am constantly optimistic, particularly all the young folks that I met along the way. The reason why I wasn't so trying to make the book overtly one way or another, and I really wanted the reader to decide, is that I think we all should be in our sense of agency, right? Like all of this stuff is happening, but we are also part of the world and we have the agency to enact change. <laughs> I mean, all the stories that you cover are really stories of innovation, but that word innovation means so many different things. And I thought that was a really interesting piece about the use of the word in, in the UK a couple of hundred years ago, where innovation was was a dirty word. It was derogatory because it, it would mean undermining government. Whereas in China, it meant something completely different. Can you refresh my memory on how you were discussing innovation in the book? Right. Hey, you know, especially being in tech for a while, innovation is just like constantly being used. And so then when I looked it up, I was like, oh, wait, this is not what people really mean in Silicon Valley, because innovation is like this idea that you're doing something that is so disruptive that it's really going to topple the status quo. Um, when I was in China, it was fascinating to rethink that idea of innovation via the word shanjai, which is this Cantonese term that means like mountain stronghold. So I love the kind of rural tie that it had. But shanjai is this like it's what you think of when you think of like knockoff DVDs, knockoff Louis Vuitton bags. And it's really aimed at kind of disrupting the status quo by saying like, oh, everyone can have access to this, whether it's information or a purse. And I actually learned from David Lee at the Shenzhen Open Innovation Lab that Shanghai started off because when people were pirating DVDs, the DVD manufacturers got wise and they started making it so that you can play them. And then the Shanjai manufacturers were like, now we have to make like Shanjai DVD players that can play all kinds of DVDs. The Shanjai ecosystem is just this fascinating kind of reorientation of like what open source could mean, what right to repair could mean. And it's very inspiring, actually. What, what does right to repair mean? So for uh, something like the iPhone, it's designed literally so that you couldn't repair it <laughs> if you wanted to. You need all kinds of special equipment to even open it. And then also in many ways, there's all these like, you void your warranty if you open this up. Um, so it's from a design and policy level. Shenzhen mobile phones, for example, there's actually someone, uh, Bunny Huang, who documented a whole bunch of them. Like you could repair them without any tools. Like some of them are modular. You know, it's really this flexible way of like just having a phone, maybe even forever. There's no warranty to void. And it's all this kind of open source ecosystem. So it's very much in contrast to like these proprietary forms of hardware that we see. Well, that is innovation, but in a very optimistic sense. In I think in Europe, it would be seen as theft. 
and I'm not sure that anybody would see it in the slightest bit optimistically. Is that what you meant in, the, in terms of the different use of the word innovation? Because you really talk about the UK, the US and China at one point. Yeah, Shenzhen is seen by um, the West as intellectual property theft. And we've come to a point where we really need to continue to push on that and question that, right? I use the case of pirated software as an example, where we're asking like, you know, oh, you're this young entrepreneur in rural China and you need to innovate, but just buy this extremely expensive proprietary software that you can't even afford to start your company. That's absurd to me versus pirated software, open source software, where you have access to these tools. I think that's enormously important. I always think that term theft and piracy, like those terms mean whatever it is, depending on how much power you have. I mean, isn't there an alternative model where if somebody has invested in building that software, that there would just be different pricing available to different territories? Isn't that an alternative as opposed to the choice being either you pay the premium or you steal it? Surely there must be somewhere in between. I think my thoughts on this is formed by like having seen just the kind of constant demand for profit in tech and the like, you know, the quarterly board meeting where VCs come in to your company and it's like, oh, no, you need to be making more money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole episode just on intellectual property, I think, but. Um, you say in your book that um, Shenzhen holds the power to decolonize technology in places like China, Kenya, and rural America. What do you mean exactly by that? Yeah, so that really touches upon, you know, some of the dynamics, for example, with the blockchain chicken farm, where there was still centralized control over this one tech product. And if the company decided we're going to cut you off, we're going to work with a different village, folks in the community didn't have any sense of agency over that. Similar to the mobile phones, right? If you're in an area or a region where you can't go to the Apple store, what are the ways of repairing things on the ground in your community using the tools that you have? I think also thinking about different types of infrastructure too, right? Like the big kind of mobile broadband networks that don't offer service to rural areas in the U.S. because it's not profitable versus like community-driven internet. And I really think that Shenzhen, because it does emphasize like knowledge sharing, you know, kind of this hackery DIY mentality and really building from the ground up. To me, I think it is about decolonizing tech. So taking away that kind of like traditional central power of ownership. I mean, that's interesting because I mean, a recurring sort of theme, at least the way I interpret it through your book, is a huge chunk of rural China is unbanked and they're using tooling or using services like Alipay to be able to conduct their um, you know, small sort of mom and pop shop business, which is hugely controlling and uh, a giant monopoly by all accounts. So you, you've got on the one hand this group that's looking for, in your words, sort of being creative and innovative and finding ways around. But on the other hand, you have basically one path for you to be able to receive payments, transact, and, and potentially interact with uh, your customers and your, your friends as well. You know, it's funny because 
also a part of conducting research in China, but also rural China more specifically, is that when you get to a place, you kind of have to say hello <laughs> to the the county officials and uh, the local powers that be, shall we say. And when I went to the e-commerce villages that you're talking about, where it's these mom and pop shops and they're shipping Halloween costumes to places like the US via Amazon, that kind of scale was very impressive and was really highlighted as this like poverty alleviation by the local government. And then when I actually started talking to the people who owned these shops, there was this huge sense of precarity and just like, oh, this could be all taken away tomorrow if Alibaba and Alipay decides to change fees, cut things off. And we're really just getting in on this while, you know, the strike while the iron is hot. There was a sense too, like, we're not going to be doing this forever. We know that. And we really just want to make money very quickly. You could see that kind of intensity in the way the villages look too. It really looked like all of a sudden there's this huge influx of money and they're building everything up and it's all messy. There's very little sense of like, what do we think about planning or design or sustainability? And that kind of growth, it feels weird <laughs> to see and it feels scary. I mean, uh, in the book, you describe a family that are making costumes and they, they seem to scale a business from nothing to like 1.7 million in a couple of years, which seems pretty impressive. I mean, how did that growth manifest itself when you're there? How did you see it? So the village, I don't know why I fixate on this. I think it's part of my like interest in architecture side of the brain. But there were all these newly built hotels um, for business visitors into the village. And the hotels were just, you know, the stairs were like very strange heights. Okay. Some of the rooms were crooked. The one room that I stayed in, there was no separate bathroom. It was very strange. Some of these places, like, you know, the the beds were all mismatched, all these things. But it was just kind of like, we need to, like, accommodate this new influx of visitors and, like, very shoddy construction. So I feel like that is the epitome of kind of rapid growth mentality in the village. And, and little regulation. Exactly. Um, as we speak today, uh, El Salvador has made uh, Bitcoin legal tender. Do you think that it's likely to happen in China too? The government really has been cracking down on the crypto exchanges for some time. The government, whenever it feels a sense like it no longer has control over something, it'll start cracking down. It is trying to implement its own cryptocurrency. There was this kind of e-coin giveaway but I don't think it's really taken off. To be quite honest, there's still a lot of Bitcoin and crypto trading that continues to go on. Even my aunt, who is a very kind of what you would imagine, like a typical Southern Chinese auntie, like, you know, has her like mahjong circle. But even her friends have gotten into crypto. And I'm just like, wow, I would have not expected that. <laughs> like you guys, you know, our shopping. Would that be deemed Shenzhen? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'll, yes, I'll call it that. <laughs> so, I, I mean, as we're talking, I, I can't help but think that there's so many similarities with America. If we were to do this exercise and you were to go into your rural America, 
don't you think that we, it would be a similar sort of experience? Is there a chance that there'll be a blockchain chicken farm part two <laughs> in the in US? The States? Um, yeah. In some way, I am looking into that for my next book, but thinking more about the healthcare angle, um, especially in rural America. I would say that the kind of cross country thinking, like I really love because in rural China, people love to ask you like, I heard this one thing about America. Is it true? Right. <laughs> and, and what was it? Um, Like you get free money to like do certain things <laughs> or like your house is so big. They, they're like, your house must be so big in America. From the photos I've seen of American houses, you have five bedrooms and two bathrooms. Is this true? And I'm like, no, not yes, at all. Everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just things like that. If, why would your start point be rural America? For me, I think just more broadly, the rural is a place that supports our life in cities. And, you know, most of the lands in <laughs> the US, it's like industrial farms um, or rural areas that host all the data centers. But it also has a population of folks who continue to live there. And there's a lot of complex social dynamics that are shaping, I mean, at least in the U.S., very much shaping the current political moment. I think it's a urgent time to really explore that. I agree. I'd be fascinated to read it. Um, final question. There are so many misconceptions about China and technology. Um, if there's one takeaway you could leave readers with, what would it be? That is not a us versus them, US versus China narrative. Whether we like it or not, we are very interconnected and going to be even more globally interconnected. And so we really need to think through new narratives and also new policies that actually address this interconnectedness instead of just putting up walls that make work harder. <laughs> Thank you to Xiao Wei for taking us on this enlightening adventure. The book, again, is Blockchain Chicken Farm. Highly recommend it. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering this week is by Maddie Zampanti. Our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Mertens. Huge thank you, as always, to Center Sound in Amsterdam. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review. And if there's someone you think that we should interview, tweet me at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time.